0: The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. So last week, um, we looked at uh, the first of the Ten Commandments, where God, um, who has revealed himself by the name Yahweh, the one true and living God, says, uh, You shall have no other gods before me first commandment, we, uh, we saw that God, uh, who is the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, has an absolute claim on our lives, uh, has an absolute claim on our love and our affections and our allegiance. And so our full loyalty is owed um, to him. And we worship him and him alone when we worship through his Son, Jesus Christ. And um, I argued that uh, the first commandment is central to and representative of all of the other commandments in the moral law, uh, the Ten Commandments especially, but if you, could, um, if you could perfectly keep that commandment, that first commandment, to have no other gods but God, then you would keep them all. And if you break any of the other commandments, you're breaking the first commandment. So the first commandment is, in a sense, the core of the law of God. Now, uh, the second commandment is intimately connected to the first. In fact, um, in the, the Roman Catholic Church and in the Lutheran Church, um, they actually combine the First and Second Commandment in their catechisms. So when they teach what the Ten Commandments are, they take what we consider to be those first two and they make them one, and then in order to keep ten, they take the tenth and break it into two. So, uh, But that's just to say uh, these are very intimately connected, this, these First and Second Commandments. Um, but even though the First Commandment, is so clearly central to the law and, and fairly straightforward, right? And the, the first and second commandments are so intimately connected, I think we actually um, don't even understand the second commandment very well um, most of the time. Uh, hopefully, we'll come away from this morning with a, a better understanding of what God means by the second commandment and how it's supposed to shape our lives. So let's pray, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask for your help as we consider your word. We need you to open our eyes to be able to see and unstop deaf ears to be able to hear what you have to say to us. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to be attentive and to be shaped into the likeness of Christ our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Exodus 20, read verses 1 and 2 and then 4 through 6. visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, or to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, we've read it. Uh, You've probably read it before, heard it in some uh, form. Um, When was the last time you broke this commandment? Um, in general, Christians confess that we break the Ten Commandments pretty much all the time. And this becomes especially true um, when you consider the commandments in light of Christ's teaching of them um, in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he used the example of the Sixth Commandment. He takes a couple of these, takes the Sixth and Seventh Commandment, and kind of amplifies them for us. Um, He takes the Sixth Commandment as an example and says, You shall not murder. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, but he said that you don't actually have to kill another human being, physically extinguish their life in order to be breaking this commandment, the sixth commandment, uh, but, but simply hating someone qualifies as a breaking of that commandment. Um, and likewise, he used the example of the seventh commandment, and said, you know, which is, you shall not commit adultery, And he said, you don't actually have to sleep with someone besides your wife or your husband uh, in order to be breaking the seventh commandment, but but they're just lusting after someone, looking at them with that kind of desire in your heart uh, qualifies as a breaking of that commandment. So he pulled back, what what he was doing there was he pulled back the external behaviors that are listed in the Ten Commandments, and he exposed the internal heart motives that are behind them. Uh, he made it clear that obedience uh, to God's law or disobedience, disregarding God's law, are matters of the heart. Ultimately, which really just opens it up wide for us to see how much we fall short, doesn't it? You know? That was kind of the point of that um, that teaching. Uh, I may never have outwardly broken a particular law, whatever it may be, but inwardly in my mind and in my desires, I've broken most of them daily, right, uh, many of them. And so I stand guilty before God who doesn't just see the externals, but who looks upon the heart and who knows what's in the mind of men and women like us. Right? Um, so the more that we grow as Christians, the more we get to know ourselves, the more likely we are to confess that we're just pretty much always breaking the Ten Commandments, but, again, when was the last time you broke the second commandment? Just like most of you here have probably never killed another human being, um, most of you here have probably never carved a piece of wood or cast some metal for the purpose of worshiping it. Right? Um, In fact, you've probably never taken any physical object at all and venerated it or paid homage to it or made a shrine for it or whatever. So how have you and I broken the second commandment where you might easily see the connection between, again, for that that sixth commandment as an example, uh, between killing someone and hating them in your heart. You can see what that connection is, right? Uh, You might more easily see that connection as breaking the same commandment. You might not see any connection at all between carving an image for worship, making a little statue out of wood or metal, and whatever is supposed to be the corresponding heart motive behind the keeping or breaking of the second commandment. What constitutes the internal breaking of the second commandment? Uh, Is it imagining carving an idol out of wood? Uh, Is it really wishing you could even though you never do such a thing in in the real world, right? Um, I mean, that sounds kind of silly, right? It doesn't connect. I don't know, maybe there are some um, really primitive superstitious pagans somewhere in the world that really struggle with this compelling desire to whittle a statue and bow down before it. um, I think it's hard to make sense of what's really going on in the second commandment for us. So let's approach it with another line of thoughts and questions. Um, Is God here in this commandment forbidding all images, period, question mark? (laughs) Um, Is he forbidding all um, carvings, all creative art? I mean, it kind of sounds like you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or on earth or in the water, right? Um, John Frame says that the word Pesel, translated carved image, in verse 4, in Scripture is never simply a piece of artwork. It is always an image used for idolatrous purposes. It is the misuse of an image that God condemns, not its existence or presence. A little bit of justification there for me having a little icon that a friend gave me up on my mantelpiece. I don't, don't worship it. Its existence and presence is, uh, is is good and fine in and of itself. But, uh, okay, so images are okay. They're not intrinsically sinful. So long as we're not bowing down and serving them. Right? So long as we're not using them in worship. Right? <clears throat> well, did you know that... Um, when God gave instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which was kind of the semi-permanent structure made mostly of fabric, like a big tent, right? It was the precursor to the temple, which was the grand kind of permanent structure where God's glory dwelt. Um, but the precursor to that was the tabernacle, and it was made of all these fabrics. And what was woven into all the fabrics was images. Uh, what was... Uh, what was um, carved on the Ark of the Covenant itself was images of cherubim, angels. Right? So he commanded, God commanded, very specifically, that images of angels and other creatures and parts of nature be just plastered all over that thing, all over the tabernacle, the place of worship. Um, did you know that when God sent serpents as a judgment... On his people for their, their constant complaining and moaning and groaning. <clears throat> he sent serpents uh, to, to bite them and kill them. He had, he had Moses fashion a bronze version of these serpents, a bronze fiery serpent, and put it up on a pole. And then he told people to look at that image and be healed. And then did you know that in the book of Hebrews, uh, in the New Testament, in chapter 8, the writer points out that the entire tabernacle, everything about it, this physical, um, semi-permanent structure, um, everything inside of it was a copy, a shadow, a pattern of heaven itself. An image of heaven. So God himself at various times gave images, gave physical artwork and representations of things that were closely related to and representative of our worship and our salvation and heaven. Doesn't that seem uh, to get dangerously close to a violation of the second commandment? Um, can't imagine that God would do such a thing, <laughs> get dangerously close to violating uh, one of his chief commandments right? by commanding his people to use these images the, the way they were supposed to be used. Um, so, what precisely is he forbidding in the second commandment if these other things were commanded by God and permissible? Right. <clears throat> if images and carvings and artwork in themselves, aren't bad, and God himself even gave religious significance to some of these objects, then we know that the problem has to be in our hearts, right? Not with the objects themselves. The problem is in our hearts, but then what is the heart problem that God is addressing behind the second commandment? I think it can be boiled down, uh, very simply, to human religious presumption. Human religious presumption. So let me explain what I mean here. Um, actually, Alec Motyer, who's a commentator on Exodus, and he's got a lot of good commentaries on Old Testament books, <clears throat> says that um, the second commandment does not refer to the worship of alternative gods. So we dealt with that in the first commandment, right? The, the, it actually, he actually continues to say that had been dealt with in the first commandment where God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else is going to compete uh, in, in your life. For my loyalty, for uh, affection and loyalty toward me. The second commandment does not refer to the worship of alternative gods, but to the worship of the true God in a false way. God is not to be represented by any human contrivance. So, this commandment is about knowing and worshiping the one true God of the Bible in the way that he has revealed himself to us, right? In the way that he himself has revealed to us how we are to worship him. He's revealed who he is. He's revealed how we're to relate to him. And the second commandment is, you better approach God on his terms, right? The first commandment was about not worshiping other gods. The second is about not worshiping Yahweh through the use of idols, That is, in the wrong way, using our own preconceptions, our own imaginations. So this commandment is saying, don't just imagine God. Don't speculate about who he is, what he's like, how you can have a relationship with him. Don't presume that your sentiments about him are just automatically, naturally correct when you consider God and your spiritual relationship to Him, you are not permitted to just get creative and make stuff up. You have to derive your thoughts about Him. You have to derive your thoughts about how to worship Him from what He has revealed, from what He has said. Now, that's not to say that we're not allowed to be creative in worship. Clearly, um, in the Scriptures, Beauty and artistic expression in worship is encouraged. But when it comes to thinking about who God is and how we are to bow down and serve him, that is, to worship him, we are absolutely to submit to him as he truly is, as he really is, as he has revealed himself to be in the way that he commands. So we're to come to him on his terms and not on terms of our own making. Right? And this is a big deal for us. Because we're constantly imagining God as we would like him to be. We're constantly fashioning him in our image. Rather than coming to know him as he truly is. And here's how to recognize that tendency in yourself. <clears throat> it's when you say, you know, I really like to think of God as Blank. Or, I just refuse to believe in a God who blank. Then you're crafting God after your own preference rather than knowing Him as He has revealed Himself. So, for example, it's a fairly popular uh, in, in our broader culture to hear this. I really like to think of God as all loving, sort of a cheery, kind, tolerant. All welcoming grandfather figure in the sky, right? To be sure, love and tolerance and acceptance capture a huge part of who God is, right? But we all know what's implied by a statement like this: is I do not like to think of God being just being unable to tolerate sin, being angry at sin. That just strikes me as a cruel and archaic idea of the divine. That is to say, really, at the root of it, I prefer not to think of God the way he has revealed himself, to be both loving and just. That is to say, I prefer to imagine whatever I like, about God in a way that suits my taste, and I think I have the right to do that. There's a book by J.B. Phillips, it's an older book, um, maybe familiar to you, called Your God is Too Small, where he spends uh, the first half of the book, at least several chapters, looking at the different ways that we reduce God, maybe to one of his legitimate attributes, <clears throat> or maybe just uh, to our own imagination or preference of him, but there's the the resident policeman conception of God, right, where he's just hanging over your shoulder constantly waiting for you to slip up so that he can nail you, right, you ticket. <laughs> resident policeman. Uh, some conceive of God as absolute perfection, right, some sort of being detached uh, uh, from all of regular reality, some sort of uh, inscrutable purity. All right. And some think of him primarily as a supreme architect or author or director of the world. <clears throat> we do this in the church. We reduce God according to our own imagination when we say things like, I just can't believe that a good God would ordain suffering in spite of the clear teaching of the Scripture that that's true. Or, you know, I just love the book of Philippians. It is so encouraging to me. You know, I just have such a hard time with so much of the Old Testament. It seems to portray a different God from the one that I love from the New Testament. Or when we project our ideas of authority onto God. When people maybe have used their authority to abuse us so we will not have nothing to do with any any concept of authority at all. We refuse to submit to God's authority. Or when we've wielded the authority. Right? And the power has been ours and it's gone to our heads and we imagine God as Selfish, authoritarian, just like we are. We project ourselves onto God. We project our own perceived needs, our own wants and desires onto God. We fashion him after our own image, which is the internal bit of taking a little piece of wood and carving it into a nice statue to worship it. And where modern psychology and philosophy and, and spirituality says, yeah, that's it's okay, it's normal, right? That's religion, isn't it? Yahweh says, that's never okay. That is not the way that it's supposed to be. You are not allowed to do that. He commands us not to do that. It angers him when we do that. And there is divine justice awaiting those who do that. For example, we see this happening in Exodus 32. It's probably the the picture that jumps into most of your minds. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you think about where would people break the second commandment and do this kind of thing. And The people in Exodus up up to that point, they they had received the Ten Commandments, right? They'd heard God speak the very words of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And then Moses had gone up from them to Mount Sinai up into the the clouds and thick darkness to fellowship with God and to hear from him, where he stayed for a long time, 40 days and nights. And in Exodus 32, it says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, who is kind of the priest among the people, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and the Lord Said to Moses, they were up on the mountain, he said, Go down, for your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. So these, they'd made this golden calf, and they called it Yahweh. (laughs) This is the one true God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And they made sacrifices, they worshipped, they bowed down to it, exactly as he had forbidden them in the second commandment. And God's response was, leave me alone now so that my anger, my wrath may burn hot against them for this. God's wrath burns hot against them. and It would consume them because they presumed to dictate who God would be rather than acknowledge him as he has revealed himself to be. <clears throat> right? They presumed out of their impatience to relate to God on their own terms rather than according to the terms that he'd revealed. And when we do this, our presumption amounts to rebellion against him, right? He says, You shall not bow down to or serve these images, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Right? Your breaking of this commandment is a hating of God. Our religious presumption, our spiritual presumption about God God calls hatred for God. On a side note, um, this could be confusing language here, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. uh, It's not that the children are getting punished for what their fathers did, um, but that the children who follow and do what their fathers did, um, who follow in their father's sin, those children are punished. That's why I said all the generations who hate God, to the third and fourth generation, they're, they're all hating God. And so they're all um, having their iniquity visited upon them by God, breaking the second commandment. <clears throat> so why is this true? Why, why, when we imagine God for ourselves, after our own preference and our own imagination, why is that hatred of him? Um, so we imagine God, we prefer our own sentiments about him. Honestly, we depersonalize him because we've ruined our relationship to him. Right? We're, we're frustrated by the results of our rebellion against him. We have sinned, and God, therefore, has distanced himself from us for our sin, and that's bad news for us, and we don't want to believe bad news. Right? Rather than think about how things really are between us and God, and the only one who's telling us that is God how things really are, rather than think about who God really is as he's revealed himself, we prefer to concoct our own reality, right? There's always going to be something about God, something that we can't stand. Because we feel abandoned by him, because we feel threatened by him, because we can't bear to feel the weight of our real guilt before him, because we just like to have a nice, easy experience, a nice, comfortable experience of the divine rather than something that challenges us down to our very core. There's always going to be something about God that we hate because he's God and we're not and we're in the wrong. We've made a mess of things, but we're too selfish to admit it. We're too self-protective to admit it. And so we despise him. And the real God, as he's d- disclosed himself to us, we just reject him on a visceral level and we carve out something different to our own liking because we need a God, right? And we'll even call that thing God, the one true God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. But the phrase, the God of the Bible, pretty much means the God who has told us about himself. He is the God who has told us about himself. And he's a jealous God, is what he says. Jealous to be known for who he really is. Jealous for relationship with us according to spirit and truth. He says in um, Exodus 34, The Lord, Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. So like a husband who has every right to be jealous of competition for the affections and faithfulness of his wife, (coughs) Yahweh is jealous for us to be true to him, to know him, to have a genuine relationship with him, which has to mean getting to know him on his own terms as he's revealed himself to us, right? Who he really is. His jealousy leads to judgment when we persist in hating him, even to the third and fourth generations of a family. But the good news is his jealousy leads to salvation for thousands of generations of those who respond to his love with love. Who respond to his grace and his mercy with obedience. Right? And how can we respond to him but to know him as he has revealed himself, as he truly is? And as he and he has revealed himself perfectly and completely in his Son, Jesus Christ. Remember the the New Testament reading from Colossians 1? It says of Jesus, He is the image of of the invisible God. It says in verse 19, in in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus. Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself says in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Right, because you've seen me, Jesus says. <clears throat> if you want to know what God is really like, then look at his son. Look at Jesus, the son of God. Right. There's a quote at the beginning of the bulletin there from Michael Reeves, a good book, um, Delighting in the Trinity. It says, Just the fact that Jesus is the Son says it all, really says it all. Being a son means he has a father. The God he reveals is, first and foremost, a father. I'm the way and the truth and the life, he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is who God has revealed himself to be. Not first and foremost creator or ruler, but father. Not first or f- and foremost resident policeman or kind grandfatherly figure in the sky or supreme architect or absolute perfection or managing director. Father. That is first and foremost who God has revealed himself to be most fundamentally. God is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A triune God of eternal, superabundant love. A communion of persons who know each other and who are known by each other in truth. Total transparency, total honesty, total truth. So if you're going to know God, then you need to know the triune God just as your wife uh, couldn't stand for you to simply just imagine her according to your own preference, after your own sentiments, with your limited experience of her. And she wants to be truly known by you over long years of delighted love, and she has every right to this kind of relationship. So the one true God demands your response to his self-disclosure to his presence in your life. He has made himself known in Christ. So get to know him in Christ. Don't simply imagine him as your father based on even your own experience of your father or your parents, right? Whether they were good or bad parents, they do not hold a candle to who God has revealed himself to be in Christ. So read the Gospels and discover who Jesus really is, who God really is, Yes, he weeps at the death of his friend, even though he is about to, by his great power, by his mere word, raise his friend from the dead. Yes, he drives the money changers out of the temple with a whip to make room for the broken and the hopeless, to give them hope. Yes, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he used it to lay down his life for sinners. So you can't put God in a box. You can never just imagine up Jesus as he really is. can't put Jesus in a box. He doesn't allow for that. Right? But he allows himself to be truly known. You really can know who God is. So get to know him uh, in the scriptures. Come to a home group. Come to the men's and women's study. Read the Bible on your own. Read the Bible in family devotions. We've got resources on the book table. You can can guide you through the scriptures to find out more about who God is. But let him tell you about who he is and how he's to be worshipped. Amen. Let's pray together. Father we know that uh, we are perfectly and intimately known by you. You know us better than we know ourselves and we we long for the day when uh, we will see you face to face and we will truly know you even as we are known. And until that day would your word shape our imaginations and our thoughts and our affections for you? Please uh, help us to to stop imagining you after our own preferences and our own sentiments. We, we know we're going to struggle with this uh, throughout our lives, but uh, we pray that you would saturate our minds, that you would inundate us with a true vision of who you are uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.